Good to see all of you here today. Thank you for coming and joining us for worship here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. And it's exciting to see you and to be a part of this time of year, to be able to celebrate Christmas amongst our church family together. If you have your Bibles, and I certainly hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me to the book of Hebrews. And this morning we're going to find ourselves in the 10th chapter, Hebrews chapter 10. While you're turning there, I did a little poll in the first service. I'm going to conduct it with you as well. If you're here this morning and you recall, you remember the events or the actual birth of your children or your grandchildren or some nieces and nephews or a brother and sister, would you just raise your hand? All right, that kind of what I thought we would get just about everybody in the room who would remember that. Now, here's the second question. If you're here this morning and you remember your own physical birth, would you raise your hand? No, Will, you do not remember your own physical birth. He's already on my list because he dressed like me this morning. <laughs> yeah. Here's the thing. I did some research this week. Psychiatrists and researchers will tell you that humans in general have very, very few memories that they recall before the age of three particularly as you hit age seven and move on, the research shows that most of us lose whatever memories we may have had before the age of three years old. That doesn't mean we don't, may, may have some isolated ones that can come to our mind, but, but particularly as it, as it pertains to being born, really none of us remember that event. The only memories that we have are the memories that other people who were there have shared with us and told us with regard to what took place. So we know we have those memories implanted in our minds because someone else has given them to us who were there and able to share those memories with us. Now, the reason why I was thinking about all that this week is not because I'm so weird, even though I probably am, but those things were happening in my mind. I was thinking about that particularly as it pertains to Christmas time. You know, at Christmas time, as believers, typically what we will do is, is we go to the Gospels, which is a good thing to go to Luke and particularly to Matthew. We'll go to Luke to hear the story of Mary, to, rem to familiarize ourselves again once again with what was going on in her mind and how the angel of the Lord had, had announced to her that she would conceive and, and, and bring forth a son and, and call his name Emmanuel. We, we hear those, those stories or we'll go to Matthew and we'll hear the story of Joseph. And, and Joseph talks, you know, we, we learn there that, that when his espoused wife, the one that he was to marry, suddenly she was announced to him that she would be pregnant. And, and he was going to put her away, but the angel of the Lord stepped in and says, no, don't you do that. Because the baby that, that she carries inside her womb is of the supernatural conception of the Holy Spirit. We're familiarizing ourselves with what was going on in their minds at, at the time when Christ was about to be born. We're inclined to go back and talk about the, the, the shepherds. We'll remind ourselves of the magi who came following the star that was placed before them in the east. We'll even, we even go so far as to think about what was going through the mind of King Herod, the wicked king who when he found out that there was, there was going to be a king who was going to come and, 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 and take away his authority, he, he had all the children two years old and, and under killed. We'll, we'll think about those memories and what was going on there, but I wonder if any of us have really ever put much thought into what was going on in the mind of our Lord when he was being born. Have you ever considered what his testimony and his take on being born was? 
You see, unlike you and me, our Lord was able to actually provide us with that information. In fact, what we actually find is when we read the scriptures, we can actually find out what was on the Lord's mind on the night before Christmas. And we find that really in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, which actually quotes for us from Psalm 40, a Psalm of David, which the Holy Spirit took and then impressed upon the writer of Hebrews and showed him that these actually were words that could be said of the Lord Jesus Christ when he was being born. And so I want us to read that and study that this morning. And for context's sake, I want us to read the first 10 verses of Hebrews chapter 10 just to help put us into the frame of mind that the writer is writing about in the verses that we're going to look at this morning. So Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 begins this way. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Here's where I want us to focus our attention this morning. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire nor had pleasure in them which are offered according to the law then he said behold I have come to do your will O God he takes away the first that he may establish the second but that will but by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all brothers and sisters this is the word of God for the people of God Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it reveals to us. Now, Father, as we as brothers and sisters in Christ gather around this word this morning, we pray that your Holy Spirit would sanctify us, that you would, you would make us more and more holy and obedient children who desire to follow you as a result of the time that we spend studying your word this morning and seeing revealed to us what was on our Lord Jesus' mind when he came. I pray this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. You know, some books of the Bible are more difficult to outline and to, to, to sort of summarize than other books are. Hebrews is not one of those. In fact, the book's theme can really be summarized in, in just a few, ver few words. The, the words that can kind of summarize the book of Hebrews is this, the supremacy of of Christ the opening verses of this entire book really introduce us to that fact the first three verses of, of Hebrews come this way they say long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by a son whom he has appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world 
He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And that's how the writer begins this book of Hebrews. And then he launches into telling us about how Christ is superior to angels. He goes on to talk about how he's superior to Moses and, and even to Joshua. And then he moves forward in the book to talk about how he, Christ is, is superior to the high priesthood, the Levitical high priesthood. And then following that, he, he goes on to talk about the, the contrast between the tabernacle and its sacrifices and the ultimate and final sacrifice of Christ himself. And in fact, it is in that portion of the book of Hebrews that portion that describes how the sacrifice of Christ is the perfect and final sacrifice for sin that makes the sacrificing of, of, of bulls and goats and sheep obsolete. It's in that portion that we find our text this morning in Hebrews 10. And it, was, it quotes a, a verse, as I said originally, that originally was written by King David in Psalm 40. But ultimately, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, that, those words are attributed to Christ. And it's here, specifically in Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 7, that we find what was going on in the mind of our Lord himself as he was being born. Verse 5 starts this way. Therefore, when he, that is Christ, came into the world, he said... Now, I want us to stop just right there. You see, we'll get to what he said in just a moment, but... What I want us to do is to focus on those very important first words there in verse 5. You see, what they tell us is that what follows, the words that, that the writer is going to reveal to us that Jesus said, what that tells us is that those words came as or, or when he came into the world. So by telling us that, what, the, what we must infer by necessity is that the Lord Jesus Christ existed before he was born. Before he entered the world as a baby in the manger, Jesus Christ already was. In fact, notice the first point on your outline. I want you to see this this morning. The, the, the text points us to this first point. It points us to the pre-existence of Christ. And what that means is, is that Bethlehem was not the beginning. Bethlehem was not the beginning. Our Lord did not come into existence in Bethlehem. As the second person of the Trinity, he had no beginning. From everlasting to everlasting, he always has been, he is, and he always will be God. If you recall, it was that really that declaration that, that Jesus made in John chapter 8, verse 58, when, when Jesus stood up and he said to this, before Abraham was, I am. And at that particular point, the religious elite bent down to pick up rocks to stone him and kill him. Why? Because they recognized what he was saying to be blasphemy because they realized that in that statement, he was equating himself to God, who is the great I am. But he was also saying, look, my time existed before even Abraham was born, who was born thousands of years before Jesus. Furthermore, the fact that Bethlehem was not the beginning for Christ is made evident from us from Really one of the most popular quoted verses and the one that probably every one of us in here in this room can quote. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, what? That he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John follows up on what he wrote there in John 3, 16 by what he wrote in 1 John 4, verse 9. 
He says there in that epistle, in this the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Friends, the fact that God gave his son, the fact that it tells us that he sent his son tells us that the son was already in existence before he was given and before he was sent. John chapter 1 verse 1, the very prologue of the gospel of John, tells us and begins this way, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A few verses later, John picks back up and equates that Word that he's describing there in verse 1 to the incarnate Christ, and he says this, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So as we examine the scriptures, and particularly as we look at this passage that's before us this morning, what we recognize is that it points to the pre-existence of our Lord before his birth in Bethlehem's manger. As one has put it, Christmas marks the human birth of the Lord Jesus, but it does not mark the beginning of his existence. As the Son of God, he existed with the Father long before he was conceived in Mary's womb. Now the question is, why is that so important? Well, it's important because of the subsequent words that Jesus is about to utter. Because he says down there in verse 7, I have come to do your will, O God. Think about that. As the pre-existent Son of God, he came to earth for the express purpose that he might do the will of God. You see, he knowingly knew why he came into the world. He came into this world knowing what his purpose was. He came knowing why he was sent to earth and what he was to do when he got here. I want you to think about that for just a moment. That cannot be said of another person who has ever been born into this world. There is not another boy or girl, man or woman, who has ever been born into this world who could say, I knew when I came what my purpose was. Now, understand this. Parents often can have their children and nuzzle them up. We did that with the four of ours. And we thought, well, what's this little girl, what's this little boy going to be when he grows up? And we have these ideas. And you begin to start training them and to, trying to help them understand some things that you want them to see them become. One of the examples that I think about that is, is, is the example of Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods' father put a golf club in his hand before he was the age of two. And he began to instill into his son's mind that one day when he grew up, if he would apply himself and do the things that his father was training and teaching him to do, that he could be the number one golfer in the world. And that is a title that Tiger Woods held for over 10 years. Now, here's the point. No doubt, just like Tiger Woods' father, there are countless other fathers and mothers and parents and grandparents who throughout the ages have looked at their babies lying in a crib, looked at their little children, and they have dreamed great dreams for them of what they would become when they grew up. Perhaps they thought that they would grow up one day and attend the same college that they attended. Perhaps they would one day grow up and take on the family business and continue to grow it. Perhaps one day they would grow up to be a doctor or a lawyer or something along those lines. Some who are believers no doubt prayed for and wished that their children would grow up and live lives that are kept from sin so that they are able to fully serve the Lord. 
You know, it's common. It is good. It is, it is the right thing for parents to have such lofty aspirations for their children. After all, the Bible tells us that we are to train our children in the way that they should go. Listen, even with all that training, even with all of that coaching, the child must acquire those aspirations and those dreams for themselves. Children are not born with those. They don't come into the world just knowing immediately what their purpose was. They must learn those things and they must embrace them for themselves. And what we know is that many times they don't. Children don't always go the way that the parents want them to go. They don't always go to the college that the parents want them to go to. They don't always accept the career path that the parents would desire for them. They don't always take on the family business and continue to run it. Many times the will of the parents and the dreams for they have for their children do not come to pass. But what I want you to know is that was not the case with the Lord Jesus. He was different. He knew his destiny from the very beginning. His purpose was not something that he had to acquire through education or through training. Furthermore, not only did he know his purpose, he fulfilled his purpose. He came to do God's will. In fact, I want you to note the next point on your outline this morning. I've done something with your outline that I don't normally do. I'm not normally inclined to use alliteration. I'm not normally inclined to start every point with the same letter. But today I've chosen to do that because I hope it will be, remain a little more memorable for you when you leave. So the second point on your outline also starts with a P this morning. And it is this. It is purpose. Jesus Christ came with a purpose. He came for the purpose of dying. He was born so that he would die. How do we know that dying was his purpose? How does this text teach us that? Well, the context of what the author of Hebrews has been writing tells us that. In this passage, the author is contrasting the sacrifices that took place in Israel before the coming of Christ. He's contrasting the burnt offerings and the, the sacrifices for sins with Christ's ultimate and final sacrifice. Verse 5 makes that clear. He says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Now that would have been a real shocking statement for the Hebrew people. I mean, after all, for centuries, Jewish priests had offered the, the blood of bulls and goats and sheep and, and on the altar that God had prescribed in the, in the law. And those sacrifices weren't wrong. They were just simply insufficient. In fact, that's what the writer makes clear for us back in verse 4. Look back there for just a moment. Verse 4 says this, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. The writer's not done saying that. Matter of fact, he reiterates that point down in verse 11. Read that verse with me. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away the sins. Now, in the face of that reality, that all of the, that blood that was constantly shed for the fact that sins would be forgiven, but the fact that it could not be forgiven, Jesus steps up and says, I have come for the purpose, and that purpose is that all of those sacrifices over all those centuries could never do what I have come to do, and that is to remove those sins. And How do we notice that that's the case? Well, verse 5 goes on to say this, but a body you have prepared for me. What that tells us, is that Christ's birth 
was no afterthought. It wasn't like it suddenly dawned on God, oh, I've got to have a plan B. I've got to figure out how to make this whole thing come about. So now I've got to figure out how to get Jesus here. No, a body you have prepared for me. His body had been prepared for him. It was not an afterthought. Therefore, his birth was a part of God's plan all along. But I also want you to notice this. Having a body, that means that we understand that Jesus was also fully human. Just as his pre-existence points to the fact that he was God in the flesh, that he, was, he, he is deity, the fact that he was born with a physical body points to the fact that he was fully human. And what it tells us is that as with a human body, that human body was prepared so that he could become the once and for all sacrifice for sins when he would die upon the cross. He was born to die. Isaac Watts is a name that many of you may be familiar with. He's written many, many hymns that we sing uh, here. Uh, one of those is, is When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Uh, is one of those hymns that we sing of his. Another hymn written by him that we sing at this time of year is Joy to the World. Uh, he, he has written some of the most beautiful hymns that we sing. He also wrote a lot of them that we don't know. One of the ones that he wrote uh, back in the 1700s was this, Not All the Blood of Beasts. That might tell you why it doesn't appear in a lot of our hymnals right there. The words of the hymns, though, is, is, is really exceptional, and it captures the essence of what the writer of Hebrews is writing here. Listen to these words. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altar slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away. A sacrifice of nobler name, a richer blood than they. Listen, Isaac Watts really was able to summarize the essence of what the writer of Hebrews is communicating to us. And that is that the pre-existent Christ had a body that was prepared for him for the specific purpose of dying as the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. And it's that thought that allows us to see the next point that I want you to see this morning. The next point on your outline, the next P that I want you to note is this. Third point is this, perfection. Perfection. Only He, only Christ could pay our debt. You see, what the blood of bulls and goats could not do, the Lord Jesus Christ could do and did because He was the only one who could. As we've already noted, the preexistent Christ, that means that He is fully God, but because He had a body and He lived on this earth, He was also fully man and it is that fact that he is both fully God and fully man that allows him to be the one and only perfect sacrifice the Apostle Paul wrote about that fact this way in 1st Timothy 2 verse 5 he says this for there is one God and one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus what that verse reveals to us is that as the mediator Jesus represents God to humanity but he also represents humanity to God. And he alone is the only one who could ever do that, who could lay his hands both on the Godhead and on humanity. And as such, he is the only one who is able to die as a sacrifice for the sins of humanity so that God the Father would receive that sacrifice and then offer forgiveness to us. He is the perfect 
sacrifice for sins. Harry Ironside, is, he was an American Bible teacher and author of over 60 books, many of which I have stolen from my dad's library and have in my own now. He was known as a great storyteller, and he used illustrations liberally throughout his writings and throughout his, his teaching. One of the stories that he tells is the story of a young Russian soldier. A young Russian soldier who, whose father was a close personal friend to Tsar Nicholas I. And when, when Tsar Nicholas found out that this young soldier was, was in the army, he promoted him to a pretty high place. He, he promoted him to the paymaster, being the paymaster of a particular barracks. Unfortunately, the young man, though his character was not of equivalent to, to the things that were being expected of him. In fact, he developed a, a, a pretty bad gambling habit. So much so that he gambled away and lost all of his own earnings, but then he dipped into the coffers of the Russian government and gambled, and gambled away all of the, the pay that was due all of the soldiers living in those particular barracks. One day, the young man received a notice that that, as a, that a representative of the Tsar was going to come and pay a visit and he wanted to check the books. And immediately the young soldier knew that he was in trouble. In fact, he went and he checked all the books to try to figure out exactly how far in, in trouble that he was and he realized that he now owed an astronomical debt more than he could ever possibly hope to pay. He knew he was ruined. He knew that he would be disgraced. And unable to face such daunting future, he determined that he would just take his own life. But before he did, he got out a sheet of paper and he took a pen and he wrote down in detail everything that he had done. He actually itemized the entire list and said, this is exactly how much I took and how much I gambled away and this is how much I owe. And at the very bottom of the page, he wrote these words, a great debt, who can pay? He put his pen down and he decided at the stroke of midnight, he would end his own life. As the evening wore on, the young man, though, grew, grew drowsy, got sleepy. He laid his head down on the table and he went to sleep. Just so happened that same night that the Tsar himself was walking around and he was walking through and paying visits to various barracks as he was prone to do, but he saw a light on in this one. And he went in and he found there this young man whom he recognized to be his friend's son laying there asleep with this piece of paper in front of him. And so the Tsar walked behind and was able to start reading exactly what the young man had written. He determined that he would wake him up and arrest him immediately when suddenly a wave of compassion came across the Tsar. And as he looked down, what he saw as he looked and read those notes and he got down to that very last line that said, a great debt, who can pay? The Tsar reached over and picked up the pen that the young man had laid down and wrote one word at the bottom of the ledger, laid the pen back down and quietly exited the building. A few hours later, the young man woke up from his sleep. He suddenly realized what time it was and that he had gone past midnight and he was just about to take his own life when he looked down at that sheet of paper and he saw that a word had been written that he did not write. Right below that line, a great debt, who can pay, he saw this word. It was a name, Nicholas. Now his first thought was, somebody's played a trick on me. Somebody who lives in the barracks has come along and just wrote that name down. So he went and he grabbed documents that had the SARS signature on it. He brought it back and looked at it and it was a perfect match. And he knew at that point 
that the Tsar himself had come by. He knew that he knew everything that there was about him. He knew that he, when he had been asleep, that now the Tsar knew everything that he had done, yet for some reason he had decided to forgive him. He couldn't explain why. He didn't understand it. But he decided not to take his own life and see what would happen. And the very next morning, a representative from the Tsar came carrying exactly the amount of money that the young man owed to the Russian government and paid his debt in full. I tell you that story because what you and I must come to understand is that in the very same way, God does for us what only the Tsar could do for that young man. The debt of our sin is of such magnitude that all of our measly efforts to do anything righteous to help pay for our debts will always fall woefully short. We are faced with the exact reality of exactly what that young man faced. When we look at our sorry circumstances and when we look at what we owe, we too may wonder, a great debt, who can pay? It's at that point that the gospel points us to Jesus Christ who stepped forward and signed his name in his own blood on our ledger because it was on the cross that Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice, paid the debt that we owe. It's a debt that only he could pay. He's the perfect sacrifice for our sins. There's one final P that I want you to see this morning. One last point that I want you to note. The fourth point on your outline is this. It's pleasure. You see, Jesus Christ delighted in doing the will of the Father. Now you may ask, how is that possible? James Montgomery Boyce actually asked this question. He says, could Jesus be delighted to come to this earth from glory to lay aside all the privileges and the prerogatives that he had enjoyed as the eternal Son of God? To take to himself a human form, to become like us, to become poor, to suffer throughout life, and then eventually to suffer upon the cross and die the death of a sinner, a malefactor, and an evildoer? Is it possible that Jesus could truly delight in such a thing? And I want you to know the resounding answer to that question is yes. He does. He did. I mentioned that Hebrews 10 verses 7, excuse me, 5 through 7 is an actual quotation of, of Psalm 40 verses 6 through 8. And that's a Psalm of David. But the Holy Spirit attributes these words ultimately to Christ. And, and in verse 8 of the Psalm, we read these words. It says, I delight to do your will, O my God. I delight to do your will. I want you to know that that truly was the attitude of Jesus when he was here. Listen to just a few verses. John 4, verse 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In John 6, verse 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus delighted in doing the will of his Father because he came to achieve our salvation. His attitude was not sometimes as the attitude that I see displayed at my house. My four children, occasionally I will say, can somebody go do, and you can fill in the blank, and I watch them. They start looking at one another. <laughs> and they're waiting to see if somebody else will step forward and take their responsibility. They're, they're even hoping that, they're hoping that maybe Charlie won't know what he's, what he's getting into and he'll be the one that volunteers to do it. 
finally at some point, one of them will feel guilty enough that they'll say, okay, fine, what is it you want me to do? Aren't you glad that that is not the attitude that our Lord had? He didn't sit around and say, okay, God, I guess that's because you've got nobody else who will step forward and go down and die in the place of these rotten sinners. I guess I'll go. No. The Bible tells us something completely different from that. He tells us that, in fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, you know what it says? The writer there encourages us to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, listen, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Our Lord and Savior took upon himself all of the misery of that we would ever learn in this life so that he might willingly, with joy, take the place of sinners like you and me. What an amazing thought. So what we've examined this morning is the testimony according to Jesus regarding Christmas. What, what we've seen is that as the pre-existent Christ Bethlehem was not his, his beginning. We've noted that his purpose in being born was so that he could die for our sin. And as such, we've also seen that he is the perfect sacrifice, the only one who could pay our debt. And finally, we've noted that he was not a reluctant savior. Rather, he was one who was pleased. He was one who was delighted to do the will of his father. That was what was on his mind we might say, on the night before Christmas. And that leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. The Christmas story, according to Jesus, is that as the pre-existent Son of God, He was pleased to be born for the specific purpose that He might die and fulfill the will of God by becoming the once and for all perfect sacrifice who saves us from our sins. Friends, that is the true and real meaning Christmas. Real meaning of Christmas is not about Santa Claus and reindeer and Christmas trees and unwrapping presents. Rather, it is about a Savior and a Redeemer who died on a tree as the greatest gift to all mankind. The question before us this morning is, have you received that gift? Have you found the Lord Jesus who came at Christmas to be your Savior? Have you placed your trust in him? Phillips Brooks wrote the Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. There's a stanza in that song that goes this way. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessing of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. I pray that that will be your experience this Christmas, that you will meekly receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God.
for the people of God. Let's pray together.